0: Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Happy New Year. This week, we continue our coverage of the ongoing historic uprisings in Iran and the regime's violent crackdown of the protests. We first speak with human rights activist Azin Mohajerin about the number of people killed, detained, and executed during the current protests. Later in the program, Ami Rashidi the Director of Digital Rights and Security at Mion Group, joins us to talk about how the Iranian regime is using surveillance technology and internet restriction against peaceful protesters. Stay with us. In spite of the regime's persistent secrecy, on their use of the death penalty and refusal to provide families and lawyers advance notice of executions, on the evening of January eighth, scores of people demonstrated outside Rajai Shar prison in Iran, and stayed overnight. After activists warned that another two anti-government protesters, Mohammad Qobadlu and Mohammad Boroughani, had been transferred to solitary confinement in preparation for execution. Mohammad Robadlu's mother appealed for clemency at the gathering. Despite the fact that Messer Robadlu reportedly suffers from bipolar disorder, His mother said no adequate examinations of his mental state were conducted by the authorities. His mother also said he is being denied medication while in prison. The two young prisoners were not executed that morning but human rights groups continue to express their serious concern about the brutal crackdown of the protests that have rocked the country since the murder of the 22-year-old Gina Mahsa Amini in police custody last September, as well as the plight of thousands detained in relations to these protests. To discuss these concerns, we turn to Azin Mohajirin, a human rights activist based in New York, Shahram Agamir spoke with Azin Mohajerin and started the conversation by asking her about the number of people killed, detained, and executed during the current protests.
1: According to different uh, human rights organizations who gather the data, we have over 520 deaths so far, along which 50 of them were children under 18. On the number of arrests, there is no accurate number of the arrests, but the estimate number is close to 20,000 across the country. One of the groups that gather the data calls a follow-up committee, which is the committee who's a follow-up on the detainees in the current protests, they identify 4,000 detainees, but the estimate number of the overall detainees is uh, 20,000. We have four people who've been executed so far. Mohsen Shekari, Mohammad Reza Rahnavart, who were executed in December. And we have Mohammad Mehdi Karami and Sayyid Mohammad Hosseini, who were executed recently in January. In addition to that, we have over 10 people death row currently. They got the death sentence. Three people from Esfahan who get also death sentence. They can appeal to the Supreme Court, but uh, they got sentenced to death.
2: Azin, a statement released on January 11 by Amnesty International reads, "Mohammad Mehdi Karami and Sayyid Mohammad Hosseini were sentenced to death in what Amnesty International calls a grossly unfair sham trial. And that's in quotation. Many Iranians now use the term state-sponsored murder instead of the word execution to describe these killings. What do we know about these so called trials and why are they characterized as grossly unfair and sham?
1: So far, four people have been executed. And as you mentioned, two of them that Amnesty International released a statement of them were were uh, related to the case known as a carriage case, which in that case alone, 16 people at the beginning were accused of enmity with God or corruption on earth, which could lead them to death penalty. They ended up having the five of them sentenced to death, and then they went to the appeal, and from five, three of them got their sentence turned over by the supreme court and two of them were executed unfortunately in uh, january 7 the court in carriage in charge of the trial did all of these investigations and arresting the people tried the, all the 16 people sentenced these t- people in close to 50 days from the beginning of the arrest till the executing the sentence Just having this short time, you can imagine how it would be possible to have a fair trial in such a short period of time, knowing that from the court starting date to the execution is around four weeks. So this is something that from the beginning of the protest, many human rights organizations, human rights defenders raised this issue that there is no fair trial. The timing between the trial and the sentence is very quick and very fast, uh, we have another person who were executed, Majid Reza Rahna, from the time of arrest and the time of execution was 20 days. Access to lawyer is another issue that uh, we're seeing more boldly in these recent protests. None of them have access to the lawyer that they can choose. According to the Iranian law, there is a list of lawyers that are accepted by the judiciary. On the interview with the families, we heard so many criticisms for these lawyers that I in interviewed with one of the victims and the family was saying the lawyer even doesn't pick up the phone. The lawyer doesn't respond. We don't know where the lawyer's office is and the lawyer is not responding. But we were reading the trial of I think it was the carriage court that the lawyer was not in his client's side. And the families have tried because for the trial, the family should have their own lawyers to pick the lawyer of their choice. But the court keep rejecting it, so the court didn't accept the lawyer that the family were paid. So they didn't give the lawyer any access to the case. Another thing that I think it's important to mention is. The torture and the, the way they arrested and the forced conventions that we see. One protester who actually was under 18 told his mom that they beat me that I would confess to anything. They frustrated. They just want to get released and they, they get promises that we all know that's not happening.
2: Said Mohammed Hosseini was one of those two men who were executed on January 7, he basically revealed to his lawyer that the authorities forced him to, quote unquote, confess on their torture and other ill treatment such as kicking him until he lost consciousness, beating him on the soles of his feet with iron rods and using electric shocks all over his body. And these are the circumstances under which a confession is extracted. This has precedence in the current system in Iran. This has been going on for more than four decades. We should emphasize that these courts are closed to the public.
1: Yes, yes. This is also something that Iranian government has practice for the, over years, most of the courts for the political prisoners, they are behind closed doors. All of these courts that are taking place right now are also same practice and not open to the public.
2: I heard an interview with one of the lawyers who mentioned that the whole process for convicting said mohammed Husseini and Muhammad Mehdi Karami took just a few hours.
1: Yes, this is something that the Iranian government were publishing their trials also, and they are not even <laughs> ashamed of them saying that. So the whole court, the whole process is getting less than hours. As I mentioned, that from the beginning of the trial to execution is such a short time. And no doubt that there is no due process or fair trial in such a short process.
2: These four young souls, they were coming from humble backgrounds. Three of these people were wage laborers, and one of them was the son of a peddler. One of them, actually, his parents are not alive. There was nobody to hand over his body to be buried.
1: Yes, that was said, Muhammad Hosseini. Unfortunately, he didn't have anybody to follow up his case. And his parents were dead. So he didn't have anybody to take his body after the execution. As you mentioned, all of them were from the working class. The economic situation, its we are familiar with that. It's not anything new. The difficulty and economic hardship that Iranian people are going through during the past years. Many protests were result of the economic hardship. I would exclude this current project because this current project didn't started with the economic hardship. But we cannot deny since 2019 until lockdown, Iran was experiencing so many protests. We had many protests in khuzestan We had the Aban, known as November 2019 protest which were led by the working class in society. We had labor protests during the past years. We have a teacher union protest that all of them coming from the economic hardship. So the economic hardship and the people, the working class, the people are unsatisfied with the situation. is not a new thing. These protests started as a woman rights movement, but still it has that economic root. Read the profile of the detainees who get arrested, I still find a lot of economic reason that why these people are in the streets.
2: The young people, unemployed, no future or no prospects for employment in the future.
1: Iran has been under one of the harshest economic sanctions and the government of Iran is corrupted. All led to the conclusion that the young generation doesn't have any future.
2: We should probably also mention that according to Norway-based iran human rights organization, at least 109 protesters are currently at risk of execution, death penalty charges or sentences. And the organization makes it clear that this is a minimum as most families are under pressure to stay quiet. The real number is believed to be much higher. And that's what you were alluding to earlier, right? Is that the case? A lot of families are staying quiet.
1: True. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are different rights organizations gathering these data. Like I was looking at the follow-up committee; they have over 50, and Norway, and which has the higher number, they have over 100. But the number is much higher because, as you said, the family are rather feared to put it on the media. And also many of these family are their first experience. They were not coming from this activism background. They're not coming from the political activism background. We have a higher number of activists getting arrested but many, many, many of them are from their first experience getting arrested They're coming from like with no necessary activism background. They get threatened that if they don't publish it, if they don't put it on the media, their case would be resolved. And we all know that's wrong and that wouldn't have been quite. They are able to issue more heavy sentence. I just want to also point that these protests were across the country. It was very widespread protests. We had had protests in the areas that maybe not necessarily have access during the internet shutdown to get the media attention and have the, the necessary access. Like there are some people in Sistan Balochistan, who not having access to the internet and not having
2: access. Yeah. To- uh, as in given the long history of torture, sexual assault, and rape of political prisoners in Iran, human rights groups have rightly expressed grave concern over the treatment of those detained in connection with the recent protests. When they were able to look at the bodies of their loved ones before their burial, several families have reported of marks and scars on the bodies of those victims. In the recent open letters, two prominent political prisoners who have been in prison for years discuss how those detained in connection with the current protests are subjected to torture, sexual assault by the authorities. The two prominent activists I'm referring to are Narges Mohammadi and Sepide Gholian. What can you tell us about this issue of torture, sexual assault and rape?
1: From these protests, we have received hundreds and hundreds reports saying that they've been tortured. We've seen, we read on the media, hundreds and hundreds reports that the families and the people who were released from prison reported that they've been tortured and uh, sexually assaulted or sexually harassed uh, during the time in the prison. We have over 16 people, at minimum 16 people, who've been killed while they were detained under the custody. And these are the
2: cases that have been documented?
1: There have been at least 16 cases that have Hmm. been documented by several human rights organizations. They have been killed. We have people who were released from jail and for some reason they decided to end their life or they went into coma and they died. These are the information that we have. I was uh, reading some reports from the Kurdistan area and a majority of people who died in the custody come from there. As you mentioned, for women, we have several reports on sexual assault, sexual harassment. I guess Mohamedi specified one of the cases, the woman in the ward, and uh, she complained that she was harassed and then they transferred him to another prison.
2: She was sexually assaulted.
1: Physically assaulted, verbally assaulted. We have so Mm. many reports. There is another case that a follow-up committee again says that the woman was sexually assaulted and she was in Tehran. I imagine there are many other prisoners in in small cities that the situation is way worse. There are uh, many detention centers that we don't know about. I was talking to one of the detainees and he was telling me, I was kept in some detention center that I would say even if a revolution happened, people were never going to find me. So it's just very sad. And I just remember one of the people sentenced to death, but I think his sentence is uh, turned over right now by the appeal court. He was saying, I was keeping in the detention in this situation. I was tortured enough that when I transferred to the Tehran prison, I was relieved. I was saying, oh my God, so I'm not going to die anymore. So we don't know those situations and the report that we have access to is already overwhelming. So I guess torture, sexual assault and harassment is way worse than we know already.
2: One young man who was a student in Italy, he had for family reasons temporarily returned to Iran. He took part in the protests and then he was detained. Tell us more about his story. What happened?
1: For two examples that they died immediately after they released, one of them is Mehdi Zahra Ashkazari, who was a student in Italy in Bologna University. He was visiting Iran. He got arrested and he was tortured. According to his family, his nose and his teeth were heavily injured. And the sign of the torture was all over his body. And then after he released, he went into coma and died. It's common practice from the government who forced the family to say that was a suicide. So the family had to force that that day was a suicide and then he was buried in his hometown. This is one of the cases with the young man who died immediately after his release. Also, there is another case, uh, Muhammad Haji Rasulpur, who was a former political activist. It was his second arrest. He was tortured. They had to release him on bail to send him to the hospital because of the injury, And unfortunately, also passed away immediately after his release in a hospital.
2: Mr. Ashkezari, he actually filmed himself showing the torture marks that covered most of his body. As he was filming it, I saw the footage. He made a comment in Italian to the Italian ambassador in Iran. Look, are you seeing what I'm trying to show Unfortunately, as you said, he just went into coma a day or two after that, and shortly after that, he died. So as a final question, Ozin, what are some of the campaigns aimed at preventing executions and torture in Iran while demanding the uh, release of political prisoners in Iran?
1: The best thing to do for the people at this moment, especially we outside the country, Is the media broadcast and talk about, speak out about the case and be careful about the accuracy. And I think the best thing that we can do at this moment is to spread the word, speak out and emphasize their case, publicize their case, amplify their case, talk about their case.
0: Azin Mohajerin is a senior human rights officer at the non-profit civil rights organization Mian Group. Azin Mohajerin spoke with Shahram Aghamir from Pacifica Radio.
3: This is voices of the Middle East and North Africa. <speaking in the middle> این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولیست شده درخت های فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سگه های بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوخفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای این بهشت اجباری برای از شبای طولانی برای قرص های حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهنناوادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت به سر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی
0: زن زندگی آزادی Women لا Freedom down with a dictator, and no to the Islamic Republic. These slogans have been chanted by anti-government protesters for nearly four months since the heart-wrenching death of the 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, Gina Mahsa Amini, in police custody in Tehran. Iranian protesters remain steadfast in calling for the downfall of the regime despite the regime's deadly crackdown. The regime has also invested billions of dollars in facial recognition and surveillance tools and internet technology to monitor the population block or slow down the internet suppress dissent and cover up its widespread violent suppression of the protests i spoke with amir rashidi the director of digital rights and security at the nonprofit meon group about iranian government's internet censorship technologies and how they track and control protesters' activities.
4: What we saw in the, those, that, that three months that basically everyday protest was going on inside the country in Iran, it was mainly they were targeting mobile phone data. So meaning there were mobile curfew. If you were using mobile data as a way to get connected to the internet, it was almost impossible. The landline was very slow and they were aggressively, the government aggressively was going after every single channel of communication. As a result, almost all search engine, almost all mail services, they were blocked with the exception of Gmail and iCloud, which is quite understandable because there are a lot of Android phone and iPhone inside the country. And if you want to go after those accounts, those phones are not functioning properly. So that's understandable why they they couldn't afford basically shutting down Gmail or iCloud. That's what happened. But we saw also games that the Iranian government was blocking games that they have chat options inside the game. So if you're playing that game, you can can communicate with other people. Now that protest is not as... Basically, the the number of protests that we are seeing is not as big as past three months. Still, there, there are protests going on inside the country, but not as big as past three months. Now we are seeing that Iran is more focused on blocking circumvention tools, including VPNs and other tools that people are using to bypass online censorship and get access to the internet. And they are very aggressively also going after Instagram because it seems although there are a lot of restriction and blocking on tools like Instagram or WhatsApp, still people are managing to use those two convention tools and bypass the internet censorship and get access to the tools that they want to. So we are seeing Iran is not only blocking Instagram, they are also reducing bandwidth of Instagram inside the country. So if, if you want to get access to Instagram through circumvention tools, is also difficult. So what we're seeing is more restriction rather than shutting down the internet. However, having said that, they announced that they're going to shut down mobile data for Concord University entrance exam. That's kind of tradition in Iran every time that they have this entrance exam. They claim because they want to make sure that no one basically using mobile phone to cheat. they shutting down the mobile data. So soon we're going to see at least in those areas that exams happening, uh, we're going to see mobile data shutdown as well.
0: A lot of people posted on uh, Twitter that they are using the entrance exam as an excuse to test their system and how successful they are to do a blanket uh, shutdown.
4: I don't think it's a test. They don't need to do any test. As we saw during the protest, they are very much capable of. Uh, shutting down mobile data in a, in a particular neighborhood. So it's, it's not a test. It's actually uh, getting the job done. They, they, are, they already done uh, whatever test they need to do.
0: Now, you talked about uh, the regime slowing down the internet and restricting access. Uh, a few days ago, a large crowd of people gathered in front of Rajoy Shah prison to protest and to stop the execution of two uh, young men, Mohammad Qobadlu and Mohammad Borghani, and for a few hours, people were waiting to see what was happening inside the prison, and there was kind of silence for a few hours. Did the regime actually shut down? the internet in that area, or did it slow it down? Because some people who left the protests and came home, they were able to report what was happening uh, in front of the prison. So what happened during that few hours?
4: Yeah, we we actually observed heavy disruption on internet in those neighborhoods. I don't think from technical perspective, we cannot call it shut down or cut off mobile data. Because still there was some sort of communication, but it was very slow and with a lot of restriction. Again, this is this is the pattern that we we are seeing all the time. Every time that the let's say for whatever reason, security reason, as they claim, they wanna they wanna basically restrict communication. The first thing that they do is slowing down the internet because they hope maybe they can easily, quickly find a solution and, you know, people going back home.
0: And their solution is always uh, suppress these uh, protests violently, as they did of the of other course. night, but they were shooting at people.
4: Definitely, of course. I'm trying to focus on uh, the way that they implement uh, restriction and internet shutdown. Definitely there is violence by the government, no question on that. But the, the way that they implement restriction is, first, they try to slowing down the internet. If that is not working, Then the next step they take is shutting down mobile data in that particular neighborhood that the protest is going on. The next step is when the protest is expanding, that restriction, that mobile shutdown will expand to the other neighborhoods as well. And finally, if they find themselves in a position, in a situation that they feel this restriction is not enough, then they're gonna shut down the entire internet. So the point that I'm trying to make is, those internet restrictions in front of that prison was basically following the same pattern. Mm-hmm. So they restricted, they are slowing down the internet of obviously their security forces, they were in front of the prison. I watched some videos that you could easily hear the shooting sound. So that's that's definitely, definitely was the case, but I guess they kind of managed to suppress the protesters and they didn't feel... They need to shut down entirely the mobile data. So again, the point that I'm trying to make is, a step by a step, what they do, what is their plan in order to control protesters.
0: So why do you think? Again, I asked you this question the last time we spoke. Why do you think the regime has opted for uh, restrictions in instead of blanket blackout of certain areas for long periods of time? What explains that?
4: I I think there there are a couple of different points. The most important one is from the economic perspective, economic Mm. side, they cannot afford it. If you look at all the letters that being leaked by hackers or even some media inside the country report on it, almost every single internet provider, in particular mobile companies, they all wrote a letter to the Ministry of Telecommunication and they basically complain about all those restrictions, not that they were like kind of, we don't want restriction. It was from the economic perspective. They were like, we are losing a lot of money and we cannot afford it. So I guess the one of one of the main reasons that they didn't implement a full shutdown is because from the economic perspective, they cannot afford that right now. We know that there is economic crisis, right? Mm-hmm. So they cannot afford it from the economic perspective. The second point is, I guess this national infrastructure is, at least for now, we can, can say is powerful enough to give them the, this tool to shut down the mobile where they need to shut down. Like an example, if there is a protest going on Valiasle Street, and there is nothing, there is no protest in Imam Hussein Street. So there is no reason to shut down the internet in Imam Hussein Street because one economic problem. Second, basically that leads to more making people more angry, those even those people who are not even participating in protests for whatever reason, right? So you make them aware that something is happening. So because of these reasons, I guess they following the pattern that I, I explained. So they're taking steps very carefully. And more importantly, again, economy is, is, is a big problem.
0: According to Sharare Abdul-Hussein Zadeh, a researcher in Iran, the cost of three months of internet outage in Iran is equal to 43% of one year of the country's oil revenue, which is around 25 billion dollars how many people i know probably you cannot give the exact number how much of iran's commerce uh depends on the internet and i'm not talking about the big commerce i'm talking about small businesses in iran
4: all small businesses definitely they rely on internet definitely they rely on internet there are people in Sistam baluchistan that they are making handcraft and selling it on Instagram. You know, they don't have any office. They cannot afford to have an office. They cannot afford to become like even a small business. So they, they use Instagram to sell uh, their products. That's definitely a problem. But let me give you like another kind of number. We have almost, almost twice number of Iran population, a smartphone in Iran. So the number of a smartphone that is actually active and is connected to the Internet is almost twice the population of Iran. In every home, if you look, including my own home, my mother, my my father, uh, we have three person in in our house in, in, in Iran, right? My mother, my father and my sister. But if you look at how many smartphones in my house and how many devices are connected to the internet, it's something around, if I'm not wrong, six devices, including computers and laptops. Mm-hmm. So you can see how much people are using internet. If you want to count as a user connected to the internet, maybe it's not even equal to the number of population of Iran. But if you look at the devices that are connected, connected to the internet, personal devices, I'm talking about the mobile smartphones, it's twice the the population of Iran. So that number is quite high.
0: And the population of Iran is around 87 million, but also the access... It's uneven across the country, correct? Because certain places, urban areas, Where, probably it's more concentrated than rural areas, poor areas. Like, for example, in Zahedan, one of the areas that has been violently suppressed and uh, hundreds of people have been killed, not very many people have access to the internet.
4: Sistan and Baluchistan, in particular, has the less. And in terms of number, if you talk about numberless access yeah. to the internet, in yeah. Sistan with and Baluchestan, yes, yeah, and Zahedan city in Sistan and yeah. right? Yeah. And look, even again, the mobile phone are the main tools that connecting people in Iran mm. to the mm. internet. In Zahedan, in Sistan and Baluchistan, eighty percent of using internet is through mobile phone, not through like a normal landline Wi-Fi kind of things, like home connection, things like that. No, 80% is going to happen through mobile phone. So you can see how important is mobile data. And again, that's the reason that the first thing that the Iranian government is doing is shutting mobile data, not any other type of the connection.
0: For example, when it comes to the economic impact and commerce, has it been possible for the Iranian government to separate the mobile from landline, for example, people who get direct connectivity through their computers, for one to be functioning and the other one to be restricted or cut off?
4: I mean, yeah, in terms of technicality, yes, yes, they can do that. Again, if when you look at, if, even if you look at the future plan that they have for the internet, these days they are very much talking about the kind of access to the internet that is unique nowhere in the world they have this kind of access to the internet that they are this government is planning to provide for people in iran they call it internet tabagati which or filtering uh, layer filtering honestly i don't have any good translation for these words because these are quite unique but <laughs> still we don't know how to translate it so non-iranian audience can understand it but let me describe how, what kind of internet connection is that so they're saying we make all these restrictions because it's, this is what we want. And if for whatever reason you need to bypass those restrictions, you don't need to go and get your VPN non-governmental source. We as a government, we are going to provide you with a VPN connection. So for example, if you are a journalist, you want to get access, let's say you want to read CNN, BBC, uh, New York Times, whatever news outlet that is blocked in Iran, right? So you're gonna basically apply for that VPN connection. They call it legal VPN. So you're gonna apply for legal VPN. So what you do is basically you submit all your identification, your name, your address, phone number, birth, whatever information that they can identify you based on that. Something like social security number we have in Iran, Kodameli, national ID. And then you need to provide them with the list and reason. These are the list of websites or applications I need to work with, and these are my reasons. So a group of people are in charge. They're going to review your application, and they might come back and say, yeah, you are a journalist. You want to read BBC? Here is the VPN that open only BBC, not Twitter, not YouTube, nothing, only BBC. So another person might go there and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a student. I need to read that website. I need to work on YouTube. And they might give you another VPN uh, connection that open only, that can only open YouTube. You. So you see, based on your social class, based on your job, based on your gender, uh, based on these kind of criteria, they're going to provide access to the internet, different layer of access to the internet uh, for people in Iran. So we don't have that kind of access to the internet anywhere in the world. And that's going to be the future of internet in Iran.
0: And they are introducing another layer of control. They are moving in the direction of criminalizing the use of VPNs, so-called, quote-unquote, unauthorized VPNs. Can you tell us more about that?
4: That exactly following the same plan that I was describing. So in order to force you, to encourage you, indirectly force you to uh, to apply for that so-called legal VPN provided by the government, they need to make other VPNs that are available in the market illegal. So they're not going to only from the technical perspective block those VPNs, they also make it illegal. So you would face with the legal consequences if you actually use any VPN that is available in the market. So you find yourself in a position that either you have to risk and use those against so-called illegal VPN, or you're going to apply for receive that so-called legal VPN by the government. So these are all different pieces of these layer filtering and legal VPN programming.
0: And this is part of this, the bill that's called Organizing Social Media. So what else is in that bill and where is it today?
4: The final name of the bill was User Protection Bill. They uh-huh. made a lot of modification on the bill and uh, the civil society in Iran, they pushed back really strong against that bill. We saw over 20 tech companies inside the country signed an open letter and you know openly they took a position against the bill. We saw that over one million Iranian citizens, they sign a petition and you know basically protesting against it, which is something that I honestly am really proud of that because as someone who works on digital rights, you cannot find such a petition anywhere in the world. You mm-hmm. cannot see in anywhere that there is a pro-digital rights petition that more than one million people sign on it right? With their names. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking about Iran. When you put your names on it, basically you put yourself at risk. Mm -hmm. So, but what we saw over 1 million people it against So as a result of all those hard works by civil society, they couldn't pass it as a law in the parliament. What they did was basically bypassing all these lawmaking bureaucracy in the parliament. Some of the article of those bills became Resolution of Supreme Council of Cyberspace. Some of them, they are implementing it illegally. Even according to the Iranian law, how they implemented it is illegal. And some of them, it's it's not being implemented. It's like we are not seeing any progress. But that bill actually was trying to focus on two, three important points. One, giving the Iran's internet gateway, giving the control of Iran's internet gateway to the military. Right now, the government is in charge of uh, running Iran's internet gateway. There's a company operate under uh, Minister of Telecommunication and head of the company is deputy to the Minister of Telecommunication. So that will wanted to get actually the transfer, the power of control of the internet gateway in Iran from the government to the military. So if, if that happened, there would be no control on those people. There would be no check and balance there would be no accountability because military reports only to the uh, supreme leader and there is no way you can i know you're talking about iran that in general there is no accountability exactly but, but according to the iranian law when something is under control of supreme leader no one can question if it's on the government at least parliament undertakes, there is a chance that parliament can, you know, have some question or controlling check-in balance.
0: And it's very ironic, Amir, because the uh, Revolutionary Guard, they are also making a lot of money from selling, quote-unquote, unauthorized VPNs.
4: Uh, yeah, there, there are VPNs in Iranian market that you can purchase and pay for them through Iranian financial system, banking system. And obviously, whoever is in involving that kind of business had a connection with the uh, security service, government, IRGC, and all these bodies, because again, it's not a country that you can easily sell, you know, illegal pools So definitely, if, if you use legal financial channel, definitely you should have some sort of ties to the government or security establishment or security bodies. That's correct.
0: Continuing on this theme of restrictions, there have been several reports about how the regime has been using private Telegram chats, phone logs and text messages and Instagram posts to incriminate people. Um, CNN recently reported on this topic and spoke with some people inside Iran, a protester who was jailed in early days of the protest told CNN that she thinks Iranian agents hacked into her Telegram account on July 12, when she realized another IP address accessed it. While she was in prison, she said, Iranian authorities reactivated her Telegram account to see who tried to contact her and reveal the network of activists with whom she was in touch. Also, the Iranian government may have used similar hacking tactics to surveil the Telegram and Instagram account of of Nikosha Karami, the 16-year-old protester who was killed last September. And according to CNN, again, her friends noticed the reactivation of Nikos' account. Her Telegram account briefly was back online and was restored on October 28th. So there were a couple of possibilities here that the regime was trying to look into an account to see who she was in contact with and possibly compromise and co-opt the account and change the content of her page. Can you tell us more about how prevalent is this how often it happens and uh, its consequences
3: well yeah it's it's
4: happened quite often because it's not difficult to do that before getting to that let me make something something clear it's not like hacking into instagram meaning that like meta was hacked no that's not the case how they do that or 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 telegram or google or any of these services how they do that it's really easy keep that in mind Iranian government is running the entire infrastructure, right, as well as telecommunication infrastructure. One of the ways that you can get into somebody's account is through verification method through text messages. Imagine you yourself. you want to go into your Gmail account. You can easily say, "I forget my password. What is the alternative way to identify my identity? if your phone number is on your Gmail account, Google is going to basically, this is one of the methods, right? Google is going to send you a text message. It's going to send you a six-digit code through text message to you, and you receive it going through the verification process, and you can get into that. That's the same for Telegram. So what the Iranian government is doing is basically they know the phone number of a target, right? They know my phone number. They're going on the Telegram application, entering my phone number as it's kind of impersonation. It's, it's like I'm logging to my account. And what Telegram is doing in order to identify myself, sending me a text message, it's six-digit code text message. So mm-hmm. the Iranian government running the telecommunication infrastructure, right? So they intercept the text messages, assist that text message, enter that text message into the Telegram application and get into your account. There are a couple of ways to block that. The problem, I guess, again, I don't have any particular information about that particular case, Mm -hmm. but that's the most common way of hacking into your account. So there are ways you can, you can set up twister verification on your application. You can use another alternative way of receiving that six digit code, not through the text messages. But the problem is most of the people, they are not aware. So there is a lack of knowledge on how to properly and safely set up your account, set up your security settings. And that's, that's how we, we are seeing usually security services taking advantage of that lack of knowledge and intercepting text messages and logging to the people's account.
0: And how successful have you and other digital rights activists been to inform and educate people of how they can protect themselves from these attacks by the regime?
4: Usually we, we keep posting on social media and through other channels like media, providing this information that how they can set up their security settings properly. But again, it's like we need more resources. We need more media attention. We need more people who are producing contents like that. And more importantly, we need basically more channel to be activated and communicate these information and training to the people on the ground. Like media, they are playing important role. Tech companies, they might be able to kind of force uh, users who are living in Iran to use alternative way rather than receiving that verification code only it's not only true but but user they, they, they be kind of enforcing user to use other alternative method to receive verification code like Google has this application, Google Authenticator that you can receive the code through internet rather than through simple plain text messages. So they, they, they need more more investment from media, more investment from trainers to provide more training.
0: How successful are internet users, specifically Twitter and Instagram users in Iran, to be able to pass the digital firewalls and the sensors?
4: Well, I don't think Twitter has that much of user inside the country. I don't know exactly what number, but... I don't think they have a huge number of users inside the country, but that's not the case with Telegram and Instagram. Mm-hmm. They have huge number of users inside the country. And still, the most effective way to get access to those social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Telegram, all of them, is basically through circumvention tools. Recently, WhatsApp introduced uh, a proxy, which is in very earliest stage. If you use that proxy, you can only send text messages. We cannot make phone call. Hopefully, they update their tools <laughs> and a phone call would be available on, on the proxy too. Telegram is kind of the same. You need to use proxy for Telegram. So again, using circumvention tools, Tor, Siphon, Google Outline, all these different tools are the main way for Iranians to bypass the censorship and get access to the internet.
0: So why, I mean, Telegram and Instagram is more popular in Iran? What explains it?
4: First of all, Instagram is basically dealing uh, basically is, is more visual application, right? So it's more... Interesting, I guess. And and also you can use it for different purposes. You can use it for your marketing, you can use it if you are artist you can be using for you know that that visual kind of aspect to me I it's is playing very important role. Plus, remember right before these protests, Instagram was the only social media platform that was not blocked anymore. Mm-hmm. So they, they had a really long history of not being blocked in Iran that made them able to have more user inside the country when everything else is blocked and you have one social media that is not blocked and is basically based on visual so uh, there are a lot of things that makes it attractive for Iranian users telegram as a messaging app playing more important role uh, in particular for elders for those who are not necessarily elder but they don't have a great knowledge of working with internet i know many people in iran who don't know how to create an email account and how to send an email, but they very well aware of how to send messages, files, videos, everything through Telegram. So Mm -hmm. that kind of easy functioning, easy work, is the way that Telegram is providing to you for work with Telegram is very easy. The user experience is very well done. All of these things also makes it, Telegram very attractive for Iranian users to use that. I guess these are main reasons that Telegram is popular, also Instagram is popular. And I can imagine if access to the circumvention tools continue and people still have access to the circumvention tool, Instagram probably is able to maintain those users inside the country. I mean, they maintain the number of users inside the country, because Telegram did that as well. When Telegram got blocked for a short period of time, access to Telegram was difficult. But as soon as all these proxies became available, Telegram not only was successful to maintain 40 million users in Iran, but also also add to that, if I'm Mm. not wrong, Right now, Telegram has something around 45 million users.
0: 45 million unique users.
4: Right, yes.
0: (laughs) Last year in an interview, you said that the government would not find it difficult to completely cut its people off from the internet. You said right now, 70% of Iran's internet traffic is domestic and the technical infrastructure can be geared up to cut off the remaining 30%. Where are they today with that national internet system? (laughs)
4: The infrastructure is is being done already. Now the big challenge for the government is the lack of trust among Iranian users because no one in Iran actually is using application of this national information network. No one really wants to use a national messaging app. No one really wants to use national email service. No one really wants to use national search engine for very obvious reason, lack of trust. They don't want to give up their information communication to the company that kept all the data and information inside Iran. And also we know with a very, not really even heavy pressure by the security service, even simple phone call, all of these companies, they have to comply to their requests and, and hand over all the users' information and data. That's a big challenge. If the Iranian governments manage to encourage users to use those applications, then we would be in a really bad situation. As long as people are not trust them, are not relying on local services, and still they want to use international services. there is a chance to push back and fight against this national internet.
0: In 2015, Iran introduced the Biometric National Identity Card, which contains a chip which stores a huge amount of personal data, such as iris scan, facial images, health status, and religious and ethnic background. A few days ago, WIRED published an article in which it said that the Iranian government is using facial recognition to go after women um, who are not um, following quote-unquote proper hijab rules and laws in Iran. How are they using biometric information and face recognition technology to terrorize the population? And in this specific case, to arrest women who are not following their misogynist laws.
4: The way that they, they're doing it is there is a huge database. Basically they taking advantage of something they call it e-government. So you see that e-governments everywhere in the world, right? You have your identification in United States, you use e government services to go to the DMV, go to this office, that office, and receiving services that citizen needs to receive. So if you abuse those data that you collect the way that Iran is actually going to do, you abuse all that data, violate people's privacy, connecting that database to, for example, facial recognition technology. There are cameras all around the country, right, for simply for control the traffic. So it's enough to feed all those pictures that you are taking with the traffic camera and feed that data to the database that they collect from citizen for whatever reason, they, whatever they're doing it and easily identify people. When, when you apply to receive your national ID, you need to provide them with all the information, uh, biomedical information. They're going to be your picture, names, information, your fingerprint, everything, right? So Mm -hmm. even they connect those points together, they connect the traffic camera, they connect the national ID database together, and from those information they collect, you can identify people who are not, for example, wearing proper hijab, identify them, find them, or taking to the court for uh, whatever punishment they want to do.
0: According to this article in The Wired, some face recognition in use in Iran today comes from Chinese camera and artificial intelligence company, Tiandi. And Tiandi is one of the largest security camera manufacturers in the world. According to this article, again, IPVM, which is a technology security website, Tiandi Iran website at one time listed the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, police, and the government prison labor organizations as customers. Could have Iran been able to come up with a multi-layered, complex, and sophisticated surveillance uh, system without the help of the Chinese government?
4: I don't think it would be as sophisticated as Chinese technology. But I think they are capable of developing those technology. And based on what we know from the that 25 years agreement between Iran and China, if you look at the those articles in that agreement, that they are related to the tech, you clearly can see there is some sort of, collaboration between Iran and China regarding AI and facial recognition technology. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Iran is using Chinese technology. But again, that doesn't mean without Chinese technology, they are not able to develop a facial recognition. Of course, it's not going to be as sophisticated as Chinese technology because it's a long time that China is investing on AI and facial recognition. But I guess they themselves also are capable of developing such a technology. Also, if you look at the agreement between Iran and Russia on technology, you see there are a lot of articles talking about the security collaboration regarding technology. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Russia and China, both of them, they are providing technology for Iranian government to use against, uh, against Iranian citizens.
0: Amil Rashidi is the Director of Digital Rights and Security at the non-profit civil rights organization Mian Group. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
1: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.